This is Michael Easley in Context. The transformation of our mind is not just about thinking differently as we in you know, 21st century Western culture might assume that to mean. It is about our entire selves that God is in the business of transforming. This is not just about my own personal fulfillment. This is about God's kingdom coming, regenerating me as a part of the community that he is regenerating. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. When Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, in chapter 15, 22, we read, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. As a pastor, on many occasions, I'm asked about counseling and psychology and psychiatrists and so forth. And it's one of these issues that there are a thousand opinions on how you approach the spiritual life as we are sanctified as believers in Christ, dependent upon God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. Yet, is there value in the field of psychology, psychiatry, counseling? And obviously, there are excesses and abuses along all these spectrums. But Kurt Thompson has become a close friend over the years. He's the author of Anatomy of the Soul, and a forthcoming book we'll hear about in our interview time. But Kurt's been able to help me in the integration of theology and psychology. Kurt, thanks for giving us some time today. Michael, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, uh, let's talk about med school and psychiatry. How in the world did Kurt Thompson end up going to medical school and choosing psychiatry as the area of practice? Well, one of the reasons why I love that question is because, as I tell people, I don't really believe that I found psychiatry, but rather the other way around. I think that psychiatry found me, and I think it's just one more way in which Jesus has been finding me from the time I was born, and uh, when I was in medical school, I hadn't given a single thought to psychiatry, and I only knew it rather vaguely to be one of those required parts of my medical education that I would have to course through. But upon my first week even, and with my first encounter with patients who were in psychiatric inpatient unit in the hospital where I was working, I found uh, that God was already meeting me in this place where my deep curiosity and I might even say passion for better understanding how people operate, why do we do what we do, probably likely because I was asking that question of myself, why do I do what I do, Mm -hmm. trying to get answers and so forth. That converged with my general interest in the way the brain works, the way we operate from a neuroscience standpoint. And so that convergence of science and human behavior really captured my uh, attention, captured my heart as well. Additionally, though, I, as a follower of Jesus at the time, this was back in the mid to, I guess, mid-1980s, it was not clear to me how one, if you were interested in psychiatry and you were a believer, how were you going to actually implement this? How were you going to make this something you can do in real time and space? And it was um, a chance encounter that I had with a woman who at the time was the director of medical education at Emory University. Uh, She was speaking at a conference that I was attending, and uh, I raised this question with her around this issue of I'm interested in psychiatry, I'm actually quite passionate about it, but it doesn't seem clear to me how 
I can go about doing this and help that be integrated with what it means to follow Jesus. And she said, well, you know, she was, a, she was trained as a pediatrician. She said, you know, if I hadn't been a pediatrician, I think I probably would have been a psychiatrist. And part of the reason that we don't have easy, clear models for what it means for people to be in psychiatry and be, and be believers is that we haven't had a lot of people who are doing that. And as such, she said, and I think that it may be possible that this is what God might be calling you to do, that we need more people like you who are interested in this, who are willing to think through this in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. And in that conversation, felt like I got very clear, hmm. uh, a very clear invitation from God to wade out into these waters, and uh, I feel like he has been finding me ever since then uh, in various ways, uh, not least of which being this recent endeavor into the world of interpersonal neurobiology that mm-hmm. found me about 10 years ago. Let's unpack this for Michael Ainsley here, the 12th grade educated brain. Okay, let's talk about, uh, first of all, about the way you put these together, because there's a lot of popular stuff from TED Talks to all kinds of things on neuroscience these days. And uh, you and I exchanged some of those emails about, you know, what pop culture is writing. But, but you've right. defined this a little more precisely when you speak of interpersonal neurobiology. Well, my uh, friend and colleague Daniel Siegel uh, wrote an important book back in the uh, late 1990s called The Developing Mind. And uh, Dan was the first to really begin, I think, to give voice to this emerging framework of how to think about the mind that we now call interpersonal neurobiology. And Dan's idea is, was, and is that uh, there are many different ways, many different fields of study that explore the nature of the mind, be those bench science exploration of the way, you know, neurons in a rat's brain work, all the way to uh, child developmental psychology, to psychoanalysis, to family therapy work, and so forth and so on. There are just literally dozens of different clinical fields that look at this, in addition to other fields of philosophy and even physics that try to understand the nature of how the mind works. But one of the things that Dan noticed, and we also, we who are in the clinical world, noticed is that these different fields didn't really have a common language. They didn't have a clearinghouse, as it were, a place where they could all come together and ask the question, what do we all have in common? And so with Dan's work, The Developing Mind, I think the stage was set for a way to begin to think about the mind using the data from various different unrelated fields of study, but that could contribute things to each other that they may have in common. Dan's metaphor for this is the proverbial scene of a number of blind men, each having their hands on a part of an elephant and Mm -hmm. trying to describe what the whole of that elephant really is about. And so with the emergence of this, I think it's given us some fresh insight into how we think about the mind, what the mind is, how it works, and so forth. And all that's been very, very, I think, revelational and liberating for a lot of us who do work in the field of mental health. But one of the other things I think that uh, really caught my attention was that all of these things that we're talking about, all these different fields of study that contribute to interpersonal neurobiology are really research into the creation. They're really how we as humans explore the world that we believe God has made. And pursuant to that, we would say that, like Paul has written in his letter to the Romans, 
in essence, those things in the creation that we witness bear testimony to God's power and his nature, and if we pay attention to those created things, they will point us to the life that God has waiting for us and the life that he has created in Jesus. Now, that presumes that we actually, first of all, believe in a God, and that that God has relevance in our lives, and in fact has shown up in real time and space, in real history, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. One of the things that we have to be careful about, I think, is that you know neuroscience and its associated disciplines uh, are all very interesting, very helpful ways of assisting us into having better relationships and so forth. But it, too, can become something that we choose to use toward our own ends, and mm-hmm. it will be easy for us to leave God out of that equation, simply thinking that neuroscience gives us one more way in which I can now become master of the universe. One of Larry Crabb's uh, profound observations was the notion of worshiping insight, mm-hmm. that whether it's a modality or a treatment or an approach, all of a sudden now this is unlocking more about me, and that's what you're saying is now the danger becomes sort of self-fulfilling? Let's, right. let's, let's go to Romans 12 for just a second. You and I have talked about this before, but I'd like you to expand on it a little bit. I, I love the simplicity of how Paul describes sanctification there, and I love your lens on it um, from a, a neuroscience uh, perspective. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove right. what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And three times in there, he talks about thinking differently. We're not just back to uh, behavior modification or gestalt or thinking correctly is therefore going to change my behavior, are we? No, I mean, far from it. I, I think that, you know, what's what's really striking to me about this, and I've, I've been helped by um, our, our daughter, who's now uh, completing her third year of uh, training at Duke Divinity School, but who has uh, developed a passionate love for the Greek text of the Old and New Testament alike. And she and I have talked about this passage and, you know, Paul's somewhat mixture of pronouns, Mm -hmm. uh, but also the the very first verse of chapter 12 where he asks brothers and sisters to present their bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is striking because, first of all, it helps remind us that the transformation of our mind is not just about thinking differently, as we in, you know, 21st century Western culture might assume that to mean. It is about our entire selves that God is in the business of transforming, even even as we age and die, that that transformational process that includes our paying attention to not just what I think, but what I feel, what I sense, and so forth and so on, but that I don't do that by myself. I am doing that in community with others And we who follow Jesus would suggest that that community and that being with others and being known by others is directly mediated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that we as human beings simply do all by ourselves. Again, I don't do this by myself. This is not just about my own personal fulfillment. This is about God's kingdom coming, regenerating me, as a part of the community that he is regenerating, as a part of the world that he is regenerating. And it is in that paying attention to, that renewal of the mind that I am doing in community with others, 
which of course you know is going to require me to be vulnerable with others as I tell them my story, as I confess my sin, as I confess other things about myself, as I hear them revealing in their confession as well, as we pray together, as we live life together. All of that then becomes a testimony that bears witness to the world that Jesus is in fact not just some historical figure, but is active and living and moving and changing and renewing transforming the world that we live in right here and now. When you refer to uh, verse 1 in Romans 12, where he talks about presenting your bodies, then he continues that thought, and I love your your observation, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So so in, in one, we're given our bodies are living and a holy and active thing. And we might say, in the, you know, the, the theologian talks about the duality of man, the pastor talks about the, you know, uh, body, soul, and spirit differentiations, however we want to parse that. But it's all of us. But then the transformation occurs mentally and in, in the nuos, the mind. Mm-hmm. And you have a great phrase. Um, you almost said it, but <laughs> pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Yeah. And I love that. Every time you say that, I go, wow, I remember that often in a situation. What am I paying attention to here? I pay fear or anxiety or control or whatever my emotion might be at that time, the need to do something or say something is my problem. So, so, so help us out a little bit, Kirk. Get, get, put the cookies on the low shelf for us. Uh, a person who, let's just use anxiety as an example. It creeps up all the time. It's always there. Uh, how does paying attention to what I'm paying attention to, how does understanding this transformation work of neurobiology, how does that start helping me? An example I can give is probably about 10 years ago, I'm standing in my kitchen on a Friday evening, and my daughter, who was 14 at the time, was sitting on the kitchen counter. It was about 10 o'clock at night. We were wrapping things up for the evening. And I had spent the previous several days thinking I was being a good parent, preparing my kids for the fact that at 8 o'clock the next morning on a Saturday, we as a family were going to join other church members in a work detail. And of course, 8 o'clock Saturday morning, 14-year-old, all you want to be is in bed. Bad combination. (laughs) Yeah. And so I figured I'd be a wise parent and alert them to this many days before this. And so, you know, early in the week, I had let them know we were going to do this. And they were really quite aware of it and uh, were uh, ready and willing to go. So it's 10 o'clock Friday night, and I asked the simple question of my daughter who's sitting on the counter, what time would you like me to get you up in the morning? And it was as if I had just sucker punched her in the nose. And the next thing I knew, I had all kinds of 14-year-old stuff coming at me about us having to go to do this work in the next morning. Eventually, what, what happened was this all led to about a 25-minute conversation with her that was not really about going to a work detail the following morning, but was about how awful the last two days of school had been for her. Mm. And it was one of those moments where you recognize, gosh, uh, in much of my life, my moment-to-moment moving, I'm not paying attention to what my body is saying to me. I'm not paying attention to what I'm thinking or feeling or sensing that gets activated through a phenomenon that we call implicit memory. I'm not paying attention to a lot of those things. I'm simply reacting to something my wife says or that my boss says or that the elders say or the pastor says from the pulpit or something of this nature without being reflective enough to pause and consider, to pay attention to what I'm paying attention to in order to shift the direction of my attention to ask the question, 
what is really going on here with me, and how in this moment is God inviting me to change and be transformed so that I can also be an agent of transformation in the lives of those with whom I'm interacting. When you look at your client base um, and, and men and women, teenagers, adolescents, family systems that come to you, do you see some trends, Kurt? Do you see these are the top four or five things that, um, that I'm seeing again and again with folks? I would say that it's a good question in that as it refers to my practice, I think I, I don't know that, that my practice would be represent, representative sure. of culture as a whole, but I can say that uh, I think, and these are not necessarily in you know order of number one, number two, and so forth, but some important trends, I think, are... I think technology is, I, I would start with that, but not because, you know, I am anti-technology, but because the particular kind of technology that we are now seeing advancing means that we are at a pace that we've never been at before. We are increasing the pace with which we shift our attention from one thing to another, to another, to another. So everything from smartphone technology to what we can do with our laptops and emails and so forth. I mean, and I'm not a, I'm not a technology expert, or, nor do I spend a lot of time with it. But one thing that I know is true is that technology is a representation. It, in and of itself, is not just a problem. It is a representation of a larger issue of what I would consider to be a problem with pace, in that everything is moving quickly and increasingly so. And the reality is that the human brain cannot pay attention to important things at the speed with which our lifestyle wants it to be able to do so. Okay, so, say that one more time. Our brain is not able to pay attention to things at the speed with which our lifestyle wants it to be able to do so. So why then is technology such a, I don't like to use the word addiction, it's overused, but it just pulls people in. Well, you know, it does use and access some natural proclivities that we have. For instance, most humans, when offered the opportunity for novelty, will tend to track with that. Uh, If something comes into your field of vision, for instance, if you're just doing anything, you're driving a car, you're looking at a television program, you're reading a book. If something comes into your field of vision, our brain naturally tends to gravitate and notices that. Now, I mean, that's just the way our brains tend to work. And (laughs) from a perspective of, you know, maintaining safety and seeing where things are coming, like all that's very primal in our brain's activity. In other words, I don't have to be thinking about that to be drawn to those things pretty naturally. So all the distractions Uh, on a website are just going to naturally distract us and pull us away. Exactly. But more importantly, I would say that those distractions on a website are intentionally created to be distracted. Without, without a doubt, without a doubt. And as such, this means that we begin to practice immersing our minds in a world in which we become primed and we expect to be distracted, hmm. which means that I spend less and less time being able to stay with and be with a single continuous interface of something, whether that's reading a page on a computer or reading a book or having a conversation with others face-to-face. This is why we we see there is an increased difficulty that people have now 
having face-to-face conversation because they literally, they are not developing the skill set required to actually take in all the nonverbal data that's coming at you from facial expressions and tone of voice and so forth and so on. Uh, you just eliminate that by sending somebody a text. Our children, we have you know, a 25 and a 30-year-old, and then we have a 20 and a 19-year-old. And the differentiation between not only technology, what it was like in those two groupings of kids, but their personalities were different. And it's striking as a parent because you're trying to provide that home environment, as you illustrated with your daughter, you know, to, to love them, to encourage them, to equip them, to teach them of Jesus. And yet the communication skill sets are completely different. And uh, I don't know, a parent that doesn't feel handicapped, incapacitated, unable to, you know, connect with their child, they won't call on a phone, but they'll text. Right. And the truncation of communication, of the, the perceived emotion, you know, all the things that, that we're aware of in that interpersonal environment are gone. Right. We speak of the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those. And the reality is, Michael, that those are things that are not just the footers that one pours on which to build a house. They are the chemical makeup that's in the concrete with which the footers are poured. Mm. And what I mean by that is to develop that fruit requires the same kind of care, tenderness, thoughtful concern that one has to use to develop a great vineyard that gets done over years. And that requires a pace and time that our world certainly does not encourage and on many fronts, whether intentional or not, is actively discouraging from taking place. That's one trend that I would say that that is an overarching one that then makes lots of other things more easy to emerge. So, for instance, you know, substance abuse is just far more easy to partake of if I have not developed a skill set of what it means for me to learn how to regulate my distress, which, of course, takes time and relationships. And if I haven't learned how to regulate my distress, it's just a lot easier for me, you know, to smoke or to drink than it is for me to have to do the hard work of regulating my emotion, which takes time and relationships, which necessarily would make it less likely for me to become a substance abuser. And with all of the, you know, commentary that now is on the national stage, even regarding this might feel like we're really jumping the page here, but lots of conversation now about, you know, sexual assaults on college campuses. But rarely, as I've looked at the headlines, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, recent communication from uh, the president of our son's university, uh, very little is mentioned about the use of alcohol and its associated prevalence when any of these sexual assaults take place. This is not to minimize the issue of sexual assault. It is to say that there are certain things that we as a culture are willing to address, but that there are associated even more fundamental issues that we are not willing to address because we may not at this point have the time or the skill sets relationally to do so. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, people end up sexually abused, depressed, and anxious and in my office. Well, we haven't even started and our time is up. We've been talking to Dr. Kurt Thompson, author of The Anatomy of the Soul. Kurt, you have a new book coming out soon? In late July, early August, University Press will be releasing The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. This is a work, Kirk, that for people who go to counseling, it's a long view, isn't it? It is a 
long view, and, and I would say that it's a view that is not just long, but it's also broad in the sense that the, this new book will be addressing not just issues about, you know, again, questions that pertain to psychotherapy and counseling work, but these are issues that cut across every vocational domain that we have become, because shame is, is ubiquitous and affects everything from what we're doing in the consultation room psychotherapeutically all the way to how we're, you know, making decisions about, you know, legal issues and education issues and the like. Kurt, thanks for your work. You can find out more about Kirk on the site. We'll link you to his website as well as information about his upcoming book. Dr. Thompson, thanks so much for your friendship and for your time. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com.